High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part three of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. Last week, we talked about Pretty Woman, a movie that has been considered problematic for as long as it's been popular. In the early 90s, Some worried its fantasy portrayal of a rich guy falling in love with a street prostitute sent the wrong message to impressionable girls. Due to films like Pretty Woman, many troubled teens believe they can run away to Beverly Hills, engage in prostitution, meet a prince, and live happily ever after. That's from a statement issued by Children of the Night, an organization dedicated to rescuing children and young people from prostitution and sexual exploitation. 
This statement didn't include any details on those troubled runaways. But another piece of media from the same time suggested that rich kids born and raised in Beverly Hills could be just as susceptible to pretty woman's fantasies. So what do you guys want to do now? Mm, let's rent Pretty Woman. Mm. Donnie, you've seen that 300 times. It's dependable. You know, sometimes I think about running away and becoming a hooker on Hollywood Boulevard just so I can meet Richard Gere. Oh. There's only one problem. What? You're not Julia Roberts. <laughs> oh, <shut up>. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm just being honest. I wouldn't want you to go and ruin your whole life. That's a clip from an episode of Beverly Hills 90210, which aired three months after Pretty Woman was released on VHS. The character who says she dreams of becoming a hooker is dumb blonde Donna Martin, played by Tori Spelling, the daughter of the show's mega producer, Aaron Spelling. As you heard in the clip, 90210 was smart enough to deflate this fantasy as soon as it was presented. A funnier deflation came from an essay published in The Village Voice in December 1990. Amy Taubin, noting that her lesbian friends loved Pretty Woman, dismissed the feminists who knee-jerked and fell for the prostitution MacGuffin. Yes, the film glamorizes prostitution, like 99% of all films, glamorize everything. Nevertheless, I refuse to worry about whether Pretty Woman is going to cause some young woman to become a hooker in order to meet Richard Gere. I mean, the first time she has to go down on some guy she doesn't like and who's got hate in his eye, she'll figure it out. Was it condescending to the audience who loved Pretty Woman to suggest that they were blinded by the fantasy the movie presented to the point that they didn't understand that Hollywood Boulevard hooking probably wouldn't lure a Richard Gere? Could the children only be saved by a movie that presented streetwalking in a more realistic way? We will never know. Because when a movie was made to serve that purpose, the MPAA deemed that teens who idolized Pretty Woman should never see it. Today, we're going to talk about a film that was marketed as a gritty answer to Pretty Woman, showing the truth about Los Angeles street prostitution. That movie, called Whore, starred Teresa Russell, an actress who never quite became a movie star, despite having an incredible and inimitable blend of sex appeal, intelligence, and raw emotional power on screen. Today, we're going to track Russell from her own precocious youth in which older men sought to take advantage of her sexuality, through her evolution as the star of a number of movies exploring the darker and more diffuse aspects of adult desire. We're going to focus on two films in particular that she made in the early 90s. Before the aforementioned whore, there was Impulse, which also had Russell, quote unquote, playing the whore in a different context. Impulse was directed by Sandra Locke, 
best known as a beautiful blonde actress and as the longtime consort of Clint Eastwood. Locke made and released Impulse while suing Eastwood for palimony. The movie and Locke's potential future career would be swallowed up by the couple's very public breakup and her daring attempt to reveal Eastwood's abuse of power. Join us, won't you, for the next chapter of Erotic 90s. Labeled by the New York Times as a valley girl at heart with the mouth of a sailor and the street smarts to match, Teresa Russell had the 70s version of the Lana Turner discovery story. In Russell's case, it happened when the 12-year-old mall rat was shoplifting in Burbank. I hung out, Russell confirmed, and eventually what she called a horny photographer came along. Thanks to the horny photographer, she began modeling. Somewhere along the line, she started taking classes with Lee Strasberg and then met legendary independent producer Sam Spiegel, the man behind Lawrence of Arabia, On the Waterfront, The African Queen. Sam loved to be seen with child girls on his arm, Russell said of the then 70-something Spiegel. I was 16 years old and still living at home, and he took me to the bistro and tried to stick his tongue down my throat. He thought he could buy and sell people. And what got to him was that when I came to see him, I was always dropped off by my boyfriend in his Rolls Royce. Russell's boyfriend was a primal scream therapist in his late 20s. Soon she'd drop out of high school and move in with him on his horse ranch in Chatsworth. Spiegel was producing Elia Kazan's film adaptation of The Last Tycoon, and he encouraged Kazan to cast Russell as Cecilia Brady the precocious college-age daughter of Robert Mitchum's studio chief, who has a crush on the genius producer Monroe Starr, to be played by Robert De Niro. I like The Last Tycoon, but the movie kind of falls apart when it becomes a romance because the actress cast in the role of De Niro's love interest, Kathleen, is just a black hole of charisma. Watching it, you feel frustrated that Teresa Russell hadn't been given that part, because as the teenage Cecilia, she has a kind of sexual mystery that the Kathleen part needed and didn't have. And then you do a little bit of math and realize that when she was cast, Teresa Russell was actually a teenager. Being the unrequited object of Sam Spiegel's affection got her the role in The Last Tycoon. But Russell refused to provide the quo for his quid. Spiegel, she said, never got inside my knickers. When he tried to sign her to a long-term contract, quote, I asked him, if I sign your contract, what if I want to do some role in some other picture? He said, You'll have to come to my boat in the south of France. Yeah, and what happens then? A furious Spiegel, according to Russell, punished her by excluding her from the movie's publicity. 
Russell is fascinating in interviews because while sometimes using outdated verbiage like knickers, she is never coy. She's always saying things like, when I wanted something, I'd use my sexuality on men and not necessarily by fucking them. I wouldn't have to fuck them, just be around them, going out and having fun and making them feel real smart. This intoxicating sexuality would be captured on screen in Bad Timing, which Russell would shoot in Vienna in 1979. Directed by Nicholas Rogue, Bad Timing stars Art Garfunkel as an American psychology professor who becomes sexually obsessed with Russell's mysterious party girl. At the beginning of the film, Russell is rushed to the hospital after an overdose. Harvey Keitel plays an investigator who questions Garfunkel as to what happened, and we see the couple's maddening relationship in flashback. At the core of the elliptical story is the idea that the very things about some women that make them attractive to some men, aggressive, unashamed desire, a reckless disregard for propriety, an ability to turn any mundane moment into high drama, can become the things that the same men try to tame, shame, control, or kill. This movie was released in 1980, and while we definitely saw blunter and less nuanced treatments of similar themes in erotic 80s, bad timing feels like a more direct ancestor of a number of movies that we're going to see in erotic 90s. The dark truths of masculinity that Rogue and Garfunkel give such brutal treatment to would get laundered into Hollywood programmers that made these men heroes. But we'll get to that later. Bad timing established Russell as a new generation screen vamp. To quote Roger Ebert, if you think of Teresa Russell in the movies, chances are you think, not long afterwards, of sex. When asked how she felt about being seen this way, Valley Girl Teresa basically said, Duh. I think I've always been in touch with my needs and desires, she told The Hollywood Reporter. A lot of youth is taken up figuring out things. I never had that dating thing. Whoever it was, I zoned in. And the men I did zone in on were not intimidated. On the set of Bad Timing, Russell fell in love with director Rogue and zoned in. She was 22 and he was 51. She said she seduced him by showing up to his office naked under her coat. They got married in 1982, lived in London, had two kids and made six films together, most of which weren't widely released in the States, including Insignificance, in which she played a version of Marilyn Monroe. The marriage and the collaboration with Rogue kind of took Russell out of the game of big Hollywood movies for much of the 80s. This meant that when she starred in Bob Rafelson's Black Widow in 1987, it was treated like a comeback. 
Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. In Black Widow, Deborah Winger plays Alex Barnes an FBI agent who becomes obsessed with a series of deaths of wealthy men across the country. Each of these men left a young widow, and Alex becomes convinced that all the wives are actually the same woman, who is assuming new identities to entrap men, kill them, and slink away with their fortunes. It may be a coincidence that Winger's character has the same last name as Teddy Barnes, the character played by Glenn Close in Jagged Edge from two years earlier. But it's a fact that both characters have traditionally masculine first names and perform traditionally masculine jobs within narratives that question their femininity. Winger, who at that point in her career was known for playing up her sexuality in films like An Officer and a Gentleman, here plays against type as a workaholic who can barely dress herself. Director Rafelson called her, quote, this frumpy figure who becomes sexy from what she learns from the other woman. What she learns is how to swan around in different varieties of 80s glam, when to withhold sex, and when to deploy it strategically. Playing several distinct identities, Russell brings to each a cool sexual confidence that Alex seems to be semi-blinded by. The second half of the film takes place in Hawaii, where Alex has tracked her prey. Previously a cosmopolitan society bride named Catherine, Russell's character is now rocking a golden tan and calling herself Rennie. We know why Alex wants to get close to her, but it's a surprise when Rennie seems to lure Alex in. Why, after she's already figured out that Alex is a cop, but is still playing as though she's a dumb tourist, does Rennie offer this confession? Second husband, how many have you had? Lots. 
That's how I got rich. Once wasn't enough to get rich. Rich is hard. You never really figure you're quite there. That sounds pretty romantic. Well, I used to think of it as my job. Making myself appealing. I was a professional. I'm, I loved every one of them. Deeply. Honestly. Though the epitome of slow cinema compared to more popular films of the same year like Fatal Attraction and Dirty Dancing, Black Widow is exciting to watch because of the chemistry between the two actresses. As Rafelson put it, if I had been making the film in France, those two women would have been completely in love with each other. As it is, we got as close as we could to what would be acceptable in an American movie. That means that their attraction to one another is channeled through Rennie's next potential victim, a long-haired hunk played by Sammy Fry. You can't tell exactly what game either woman is playing with the other until the film's gotcha ending, but it's clear, whatever it is, the man is just a pawn in it. According to Time magazine, Black Widow made movie history, a detective and a villain, both women. Together, they fuse as a feminist femme fatale. For Roger Ebert, Black Widow proved that Russell had the potential to be a big mainstream star. She seemed torn as to whether or not she wanted that. In one interview, she said, I had my children in my 20s. Now I've just passed 30. It's time to make a more conscious effort to work in more high-profile kinds of things. In another interview around the same time, she said, It depresses me to think of movies in industry terms. Most of the films that are box office smashes leave me thinking that no one will ever like the kind of work I do. Hollywood is notorious for exploiting people who will do anything for fame and fortune. Of course, having money is nice. It gives you freedom. Specifically, the freedom to tell people to stuff it. Even in objectification, Russell was an anomaly. After Black Widow, Playboy called her the thinking man's sex symbol. And when a journalist for American Film asked her about it, she said she liked the idea of being seen as, quote, not just an easy lay, but something you have to work for and try to figure out. This was preferable to what she described as the path of least resistance in Hollywood and to most men. That image of totally contrived sexuality with bleached hair, pushed up tits and makeup an inch thick still works. I think men still like to see women as objects. They think that's safe. You don't have to invest your emotions or real feelings. You can just get your dick up, stick it in, and then say, so long, sweetie. 
This interview was done as Russell was about to shoot Impulse. It would be her first time working with a female director. On the one hand, I hate the attitude of, I'm looking forward to working with a female director, she mused. It's like, so what? But in some areas of sensitivity, it will be interesting to see how this mainstream picture about an undercover cop with a love interest is handled. You always think that if a woman made a sex scene, the bed would be covered with rose petals and there'd be lace curtains blowing in the breeze. There is not a single rose petal or lace curtain in Impulse. Released about a month after Pretty Woman, Impulse begins with a startlingly different image of sex work on Los Angeles streets. The boulevard in front of a rent-by-the-hour motel is totally deserted except for a single woman in a gold snake print mini. Finally, a man in a car pulls over and offers her $50. Hi. Hi, yourself. Easier to talk if you get in. I don't get into cars. Thought maybe we could just go back to my hotel room? So what are we talking about here? Say, 50 bucks? What for? I just want to fuck you, that's all. Nothing weird. Pull around there and park. I got a room. You got a room? When he gets out of the car, he immediately starts touching the merchandise, despite her protests. All of a sudden, the LAPD shows up and arrests the John. And the woman in the gold mini slinks off alone. Her name is Lottie, and she's an undercover LAPD narcotics officer who has been moonlighting for the vice department as a decoy hooker. She's on thin ice at work, caught between internal affairs, who have her going to mandated therapy sessions while she's on probation for shooting a suspect in the heat of the moment, and her boss, whose constant sexual harassment she's learned to live with. As she tells the shrink, if she reports him, she's the one who will face consequences. The incident with Morgan, now why aren't you willing to report it? Come on, Doc, flip on your brights. You only say I encouraged it. Did you? <laughs> Morgan, not likely. Lately. Sometimes, working vice, strangers, really look at you, feel all that power over them, make them pay. It excites me. I just, I wonder what it would be like just to do it. Who's, who's control? Fantasies can be normal, Lottie. Yeah, well, my fantasy, the guy's not handsome, he's 
He's old and ugly and wants me to do all these degrading things. And the worse it gets, the more excited I get. What sort of things? Well, first he, uh... Ah, oh, shit, Doc, sorry. We're out of time. Very funny. Next week, same station. <laughs> Another actress might have made us believe that Lottie really does fantasize about losing control. But Teresa Russell plays this scene with her patented cool. She's giving the shrink the pathology the doctor expects to hear, half as a way to get off probation, and half just to troll her. When Lottie later has a chance to lose herself by having sex for money, Russell's performance is much more realistically conflicted. I think Impulse is interesting because, for so much of the movie, Russell plays Lottie's detachment without revealing to the audience who she quote-unquote really is. Impulse and Black Widow are both about women who assume false identities, using their sexuality not for their own pleasure, but to some other end. They're about women who are expert at operating in a world of men. In Black Widow, a very pro-FBI movie, we are meant to think that Catherine slash Rennie is a bad seed who could have kept her cycle of deception going forever. Impulse, which paints the LAPD as toxic, is more interested in what's going on psychologically with its undercover artist at least to a point. Impulse is also more of its moment in the sense that it's asking the question, what is sexual harassment? When her cute coworker won't leave her alone, initially Lottie seems just as annoyed as when her gross coworker tried to blackmail her for sex. When she mutters, inside every guy is a pervert just waiting to get out. You believe, she believes that's true. But she allows a relationship to develop with the cute detective, played by Jeff Fahey. It feels like the movie is saying the difference between welcome and unwelcome advances ultimately comes down to vibes. And yeah, that might be confusing for men, but that doesn't give them the right to be a violent creep about it. For 1990, that feels incredibly progressive. I was surprised that some contemporary reviews of Impulse suggested that it was generic, to quote Karen James in the New York Times, for the sheer reason that it centers an extremely complicated female protagonist in an otherwise entirely male milieu, which was novel enough that it inspired a trend story in the LA Times lumping impulse with Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel. But most reviews were mixed. Impulse tries to be a movie about an undercover policewoman's psychosexual predicament. And who better than Teresa Russell, the actress everybody wants to fuck, to play Lottie, the cop everybody wants to fuck, wrote Helen Node in the LA Weekly. The acting is really good, Node acknowledged, especially Russell, who plays Lottie as smart and self-reliant, but 
trashy and kind of confused. Sandra Locke, though, directs like a myopic, placing the camera two inches from her subjects. I didn't notice Locke's camera feeling too close to any of her subjects, except in the film's single sex scene, which is composed largely of insert shots of Russell and Fahey's hands in motion. This scene doesn't look anything like the woman-directed sex scene that Russell had derisively imagined, and the rest of the movie defies gendered expectations, too. Shooting in a grainy palette of high-contrast neons and blacks that anticipates much indie noir of the coming decade, Locke also uses the tropes of the previous decade's erotic thrillers in interesting ways. At the moment when Lottie's self is most divided, Russell is filmed with her face illuminated by the light of a pool coming through Venetian blinds, which dissect her image into wavy, trembling shards. The most important critics in 1990 were Siskel and Ebert, and they both gave the movie thumbs up. There are ways in which this film resembles the French classic Pickpocket, in which the psychological study is more important than the plot, and it's suggested that some cops get into the job because they have an unhealthy fascination with crime. The screenplay by John DeMarco and Lee Chapman is ingeniously constructed, but the real surprise here is the powerful direction by Sandra Locke. This is a very good thriller. I think so, too. And, you know, when I saw this picture, I thought of one other film which has many of the same themes. We've just reviewed it, and this film blows that film out of the water completely, and that's uh, Blue Steel. I mean, it has the same kind of a thing with a... If this segment made at the movie's viewers interested in seeing Impulse, most were out of luck, as Warner Brothers only put the film in limited theaters. This was a disappointment for its star. I think Sandra Locke did a brilliant job with that piece, and I really love the film, Russell said. It isn't one of those low-budget, do-it-for-love films that I normally do that never get any kind of proper release at all. This one, I hoped, would get a wider release, but they didn't do it. Impulse didn't get a wider release due to its director's entanglement, personally and professionally, with one of its studio's most valued stars. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. An ethereal, wispy blonde... Sandra Locke's first movie role was in the 1968 film adaptation of the Carson McCullers novel, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Though she was 21 and married, she lied and said she was only 17 to play the part of a 14-year-old. She was nominated for an Oscar and became the starlet of the moment. For a brief moment. Sandra's husband, Gordon Anderson, had been her best friend since high school. They both knew he was gay before they married, but it was a different time. They would never divorce, but both would have relationships with men, and they were totally transparent with one another about it. 
Locke first met Eastwood in 1972, when she was considered for the role eventually played by Kay Lenz in Eastwood's film Breezy. In Licorice Pizza, there's a scene in which Alana Heim's character auditions for that same movie and then ends up on a whirlwind night out with Sean Penn's character, who is essentially Breezy star William Holden. Sandra Locke's audition was nothing like that. Instead, she went to Eastwood's office, which everyone called the Taco Bell because the building had a similar Spanish-tiled roof. There, Eastwood practiced putting golf balls across the carpet the entire time Locke was in the room. When Gordon later asked her how it went, she said, I'm not sure he ever actually paid attention to me whatsoever. Three years later, Locke was called in for another meeting with Eastwood. This time, Eastwood cast her in his movie, The Outlaw Josie Wales, which Clint planned to star in and produce. Philip Kaufman, 15 years before he became the director of the first NC-17 movie, was slated to direct. The first night on location in Arizona, Locke had dinner with Kaufman, who she claimed made a move on her, which she politely declined. The next night, she had dinner with Clint. Physically, I thought he was the most gorgeous man I had ever seen, Locke later wrote, recalling, we made love that night, not once, but several times. It was truly magic. Eastwood claimed he felt the magic too. After that first night, he wanted Locke with him all the time. He asked that she call him daddy, and he called her his perfect little girl. After observing Kaufman putting his hands on Sandra's waist to explain how he wanted her to move in front of the camera, Eastwood told Sandra, I don't like the way he touches you. A few days later, Eastwood fired Kaufman and took over directing himself, an action that caused the DGA to change their rules to protect directors from producers taking their jobs. Sandra felt that she was in love, but she also assumed she was in a location romance. Clint was married and was raising two kids with his wife, Maggie, in Carmel, California. And yet, when Eastwood went home to edit the movie, he invited Sandra to come up to Carmel and be with him. He cast Locke in his next directorial effort, The Gauntlet, and encouraged her to sign with his agent and to not make any movies without him that would take her away from him. Wherever Clint went, Locke tagged along. And when he occasionally went home to Carmel, she would stay at Eastwood's house in Sherman Oaks. After a couple of years, Locke, as she later wrote, no longer thought about making even the most casual plans of my own. To promote the gauntlet, Locke and Eastwood participated in a People magazine cover story which semi-outed them as a couple, much to the chagrin of Clint's wife, who apparently had been kept in the dark as to the identity of her husband's near-constant companion. In the beginning, Locke wrote, 
I guess I wanted Clint to be divorced and marry me. But I patiently waited for Clint to handle things in the best way for everyone involved. Then, before I knew it, years had gone by. Clint and Maggie Eastwood eventually divorced in 1984. But even then, Sandra, quote, truly believed that Clint and I did not need papers to validate the commitments we had made to each other. And she did not want to divorce Gordon because remaining married ensured that he, who in her mind was her only family, would be financially protected if something happened to her. Plus, Eastwood always told her, we'll always be on our honeymoon. She felt he was sincere and that they had an almost perfect life together. That's why when she became pregnant and he told her, if you have a child, our whole life will change. She agreed that she should get an abortion. When she became pregnant again, a year later, she was less sure that abortion was the right choice for her, but she did it again. Still, it had become clear that Eastwood's preferred birth control, the rhythm method, wasn't working. He didn't like the feel of an IUD and didn't want her to get on the pill. He mentioned one day that a female friend of theirs had had her tubes tied, and maybe that was something Sandra should try. So she did. After terminating two pregnancies and putting a surgical end to her fertility, Locke had one request. She asked Clint if they could get a new house in Los Angeles, as they were still living in the place that had been decorated by his wife, Maggie. Clint agreed, saying, Go find a house you love, and I'll buy it for you. Locke did just that, selecting a home in Bel Air, and painstakingly remodeling it. This home, she decided, would be my baby. Clint also agreed to buy a smaller house for Gordon to live in. Eastwood claimed he was happy to invest in this real estate on behalf of Locke because, as she recalled him saying, you don't spend a lot of money on jewelry and stupid stuff like some women. Eastwood and Locke starred together in the monkey movie, Every Which Way But Loose, Bronco Billy, and the monkey movie sequel, Any Which Way You Can. Their last film together would be Sudden Impact, Eastwood's fourth as the character Dirty Harry Callahan. The film began as a rape-revenge story that Sandra hoped to develop as a vehicle that she could make without Clint, and thus make a name for herself apart from Eastwood. But then Clint bought the material, hired his own writer, and transformed it into a Dirty Harry movie. A couple of years later, Locke found a script called Rat Boy. To her surprise, Eastwood was supportive of her trying to direct it, and got her a deal to do so at his home studio, Warner Brothers. But despite this easy green light, later, Sandra would feel that the project was doomed from the start, and that it doomed her relationship, because, 
quote, As a director, I could not be daddy's perfect little girl. Not that he gave her much of a chance to strike out on her own. According to Locke, Eastwood overpowered her every step of the way, vetoing her casting, throwing out a rewrite which Gordon had contributed to, and overseeing the editing process. They fought constantly over the movie, and these fights soured a personal relationship that had otherwise been relatively smooth for a decade. Their romance began to deteriorate, and Eastwood started spending a lot of time without her in Carmel, where he had been elected mayor. She caught him in lies and manipulations. Before gaslighting was common slang, she told a friend that she felt like Ingrid Bergman in that film. One thing that's kind of shocking about Eastwood and Locke's entanglement, especially considering how he tried to spin it once it had ended, was that the media reported on it with almost total transparency. Magazines openly discussed their relationship, even while both were married to other people. A Vogue story on Rat Boy was headlined, Eastwood's Mole Shoots a Movie, while the LA Times used the headline, Locke turns to Rat Boy to escape Clint's maze, blatantly suggesting that Eastwood was someone Locke needed to escape, at least professionally. The same article noted that Locke had long fought off the perception that she only worked primarily in Eastwood's movies because she was his mistress. Locke got another chance to direct her way out of that maze when Al Reddy, a friend of Clint's and the producer of The Godfather played by Miles Teller on the recent series The Offer, approached her about directing the script that became Impulse. Production was set for early 1989. A couple of weeks before, at Christmas, Sandra and Clint had a blowout fight at his house in Idaho, which resulted in Sandra returning to Bel Air by herself. For the first time in their relationship, Eastwood and Locke didn't speak for weeks. Clint was a stranger to me after all, she later wrote. I had trusted completely in our relationship and let it consume my entire adult life. Now it seemed nothing but a joke. Somehow, I had to keep it together so that I could direct this film and go on. In the middle of the shoot, Clint showed up at the Bel Air house and awkwardly, passive-aggressively, suggested that Locke move out. She recalls that she said, I want you to tell me that you don't love me anymore, Clint. Can you say it? She says that he stammered, Well, maybe you could just put it on the back burner until you finish your film. Even if they were going to break up, she thought it had been very clear that he had purchased this house for her, that it was her baby. And then, a week later, while she was on set, Eastwood had the locks changed at the house. He had her clothes packed up into 14 boxes and tried to deliver them to the house where her husband Gordon was living. 
Gordon pretended not to be home because he had an instinct that something rotten was going on. He was right. Eastwood was going to try to prove that Locke didn't really live with him, but with her husband, by saying that all of her clothes were at Gordon's house and not in Bel Air. From the set of Impulse, on the phone between shots, Sandra tearfully told her lawyer to file a lawsuit. She just wanted her house back. Then she went back to directing the movie. My split with Clint was personally devastating, she later wrote, but it was also about my ability to continue working in my profession. I had to complete Impulse and hope it would keep my career going. For the moment, it was all I had. Later, in a ruling against her, a judge would claim that Locke couldn't have suffered emotional distress from her breakup because if she had, she wouldn't have been able to complete the film. Locke sued Eastwood for palimony, a term that had entered the lexicon in 1977 when Lee Marvin's longtime girlfriend Michelle sued him, claiming that California's community property laws entitled her to one half of everything he earned while they were cohabitating. When a judge agreed that she had a case that could go to trial, it set a major legal precedent. But she lost her case against Marvin on appeal, and to some in Hollywood, Michelle became something between a cautionary tale and a joke. Eastwood was counting on following in the footsteps of Lee Marvin, and he used the specter of Marvin's accuser to intimidate Sandra. She claimed he told their mutual friend Lily Zanuck that Locke could either become a director or become Michelle Marvin and vowed to drag her ass through court until there's nothing left. I'll never settle with her. I paid her for her jobs in movies. Now she wants to be paid for love? When Locke tried to meet with him about a settlement, Eastwood stopped just short of calling her a whore to her face, sneering, How much do you want for each time we did it? This conversation happened after the release of Impulse, in which the heroine's boyfriend drunkenly suggests that the worst thing she could have done was trade sex for money. Tell me what happened that night. It was after the moon off bust. I was really hyped. And on the way home, I got a flat tire. So while it was being fixed, I went across the street to the bar. Who was there? Prone? He bought me a drink, I thought. Didn't you buy something else, Lottie? Did he put some money on the bar and buy something else? Didn't he buy you? You took the money because that's all you're worried about and concerned about is a big fat bankroll, right? And then you went with them. And you fucked them. You fucked them for money! Did you fuck them? I don't know why I went with them. All I know is I didn't fuck him. I did oh, it. You did what stopped you, Lottie? Was maybe uh, you looked at him and... Saw my face! Is that what you did? No! Is that what you want to hear? 
Impulse's happy ending, complete with freeze frame and end credits plot song, rings false. Because that earlier scene is so raw. And also because Teresa Russell feels wasted as a woman who wants to be redeemed by the love of a boring man. Only privately would Eastwood admit that what he and Locke had was love. In a deposition, he said Sandra had been his part-time roommate for approximately 10 years, but that her real place of residence had been with her husband. He also acknowledged that he had tapped the phones at the Bel Air house, but claimed that the purpose was not to listen in on Sandra's calls, but to prove that Gordon was a threat to him. Clint claimed he had received a threatening phone call from a man who said he was going to fuck him and kill him, and he believed the caller was Sandra's husband, Gordon. Over the course of the long, drawn-out legal battle, Locke learned that around the time she started making Rat Boy, Eastwood had started a family with a woman in Carmel, siring two children, including future actor Scott Eastwood. Then Sandra was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a double mastectomy, chemo, and radiation before she went into remission. Still, Clint refused to settle. Finally, in November 1990, Al Reddy approached Locke with a proposal. A judge had already determined that Locke had no right to the Bel Air house. The only other thing she really cared about was making movies. What if, by way of a settlement, Eastwood used his clout to get her a deal to direct films for his studio, Warner Brothers? Locke thought this sounded like a dream come true. She figured that it was the best of both worlds. The studio would take her seriously because of Eastwood's power, but because he didn't actually want to spend any time with her anymore, she would be left alone to make the movies she wanted to make without his interference. According to Locke, she willingly gave up her rights to many things she believed were rightly hers because she believed the three-year, $1.5 million deal that Warner Brothers had signed her to would be worth it. She had already made two movies for the studio. She had no reason to think they would never greenlight another. But that is exactly what happened. In three years, Warner Brothers rejected 30 scripts that Locke pitched herself to direct, including the material that would become the pregnant man comedy Junior, to which Locke had already attached Arnold Schwarzenegger to star. When Warner Brothers passed, Arnold ended up giving the script to Ivan Reitman, who directed the film for Universal. She started to suspect that Clint hadn't guaranteed her a deal to make movies, but had made an under-the-table arrangement to ensure that she would never make another movie. She got a new agent who confirmed her suspicions. The word was on the street that Warners was never going to make a film with her. She had her lawyer appeal to the top brass at the studio, who told him, 
We can give her a $25,000 settlement, but that's it. This, she assessed, was some sort of tip for being a good girl and going away quietly. I had done that before, and this time, I wasn't interested. In 1994, Locke sued Eastwood again, this time for fraud. She alleged that Eastwood had arranged a sham deal to get her to drop her previous lawsuit. She had discovered that her WB salary was being billed as expenses on Eastwood's film Unforgiven, which seemed like evidence that he was essentially paying the studio to make sure they wouldn't work with Locke. This deal had been a cheap way to get rid of Sandra, much cheaper than if the Palimony case had gone to trial and she had been awarded anything close to half of Eastwood's earnings since 1976. It had also given him revenge. Clint did not want me to work, Locke said, because in 1989, I had fought him when he had expected me to just go away with nothing. For her, the bottom line was that she had given up her house, most of her belongings, and even her pet parrot, which Clint had refused to return to her, in exchange for the chance to work as a director. But she hadn't worked since Impulse. The big difference between the Palimony case and the fraud case was that the latter went to trial, allowing for more media coverage of both sides, and the media seemed to take Sandra's side. The fraud case was in the hands of the jury when Eastwood asked to settle and Locke accepted. Several of the jurors then spoke to the media and said they had voted in favor of Sandra. They were only debating how many millions to award her. Locke never disclosed the amount of the settlement. She directed one more feature film. Her breast cancer came back, and when she died in 2018, the headlines of several of her obituaries omitted her name, but included Clint's. The Sandra Locke story is about a powerful man who is used to using money and power to get what he wants and to make problems go away, who assumes that women are just like any other problem. The only question is how cheaply you can get them to disappear. A transactional relationship only functions if both parties participate in setting the terms of the transaction. As you know, if you listened to last week's episode, this is exactly what I think Pretty Woman is about. And if you look at it that way, it makes perfect sense that that movie was such a huge hit in 1990 at the same time as Locke's palimony suit and at the same time that the culture at large was convulsing, of course, not for the first time, over how to deal with women who wouldn't allow men to get away with robbing them of agency. Of course, because Pretty Woman uses prostitution as what Amy Taubin astutely called its MacGuffin, meaning it's an excuse to set the story in motion and not the real subject of the movie, there were many people who felt there needed to be a corrective in terms of a film that, quote unquote, told the truth 
about streetwalking. Was Ken Russell the right person to direct that corrective? After the break, horror. In his review of horror for the New York Times, Vincent Canby commented that the movie, quote, looks sort of cheap. He's taking advantage of the double meaning of that word in the context of describing a woman who does sex work, but unfortunately, it's impossible not to notice from the opening credits on that horror feels unusually visually limited for a Ken Russell film. Part of this has to do with the fact that it was shot in downtown Los Angeles during a period in which the area had essentially been left to burn out before the next revitalization cycle. In his autobiography, which was published after Horror was shot, but before it was released, Russell alluded vaguely to quote-unquote bloodshed in the streets during production and cracked, if it hadn't been for iced champagne and our police escort, we never would have come out alive. Horror takes place during a day in the life of Teresa Russell's Liz, a streetwalker whose monologues to the camera set up flashbacks that show us how she got here. The first scene is pretty much the same as the first scene of Impulse, except this one takes place in broad daylight and is much more vulgar. How you doing? Fine. You a cop? No. Why, are you? No. You want a day? How much? How much you gotta spend? Uh, it depends on what you do. I have sex. I give head, half and half. And I do domination. Uh, is that all? What do you mean, is that all? What the hell you want, a hand job? I want to fuck you up the ass. You could stick it up your own, asshole. <laughs> I would if I could, bitch. Bastard! <laughs> Fucking jerk off! Liz is sexually assaulted seven minutes into this movie in a scene that is maybe supposed to be comic. And two minutes later, in a flashback, she's gang-raped off-screen and left for dead. Unlike Lottie in Impulse, Liz doesn't have the protection of the cops who surveil and pay her, and Whore suggests the Johns of Los Angeles are so endemically, sadistically violent that the girl-boss self-sufficiency of Viv and Kit in Pretty Woman would get a working girl killed pretty quickly. Instead, Liz has a pimp named Blake, who, with his ivory skin and flame-red hair, looks hilariously like a recurring baddie on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Though it ends up feeling like a frustratingly diffuse plot device, the best stuff in horror has to do with Blake, particularly his soliloquy in which he justifies treating prostitutes as less than human beings. They're oversexed, and they're born like that. Nature's rejects from the moment that they came into this world. 
All they have to offer is their bodies, so they might as well get paid for it. They're born with a price tag. If somebody gave them a million bucks, they'd be back in the streets in a week. They can't help themselves. There's nothing you can do about it. It's like being born black or white. It's just the way they are. Blake takes Liz out to dinner at a fancy restaurant in a scene that feels like it must be a hastily written spoof on the similar scene in Pretty Woman. What is calamar? It's a kind of octopus, you stupid moron. It's fucking octopus. I should have known. They got testicles, don't they? Though I thought they had eight of them. Looks like you've been shortchanged. Looks like a dick. I said forget it. You're as fat as a fucking pig. I'm... I am? I'm not interested in being the appendage of the main male actor, Russell said shortly after Impulse was released. How fucking boring. In the dinner scene of Pretty Woman, Vivian is absolutely an appendage. And in Whore's update, Liz is... Certainly the protagonist. But is this really a meaningful upgrade? The high pitch of the dinner scene is typical of the tone of horror and of Russell's performance, which never coalesces. The movie is constantly making fun of Liz's lack of education and sophistication, which Russell plays at such a high register that it sometimes feels cruel. That the character is disassociating is clear. Even as she's constantly addressing the camera, her most traumatic moments are presented through distancing devices, including a scene in which her pimp violently kidnaps her from a safe and nurturing situation. I get it, it's Brechtian, but it's also annoying. Pretty Woman is not a reliable depiction of street prostitution because it distorts everything into a fairy tale. Whore isn't a reliable depiction of street prostitution because it distorts everything into a grotesque cartoon in a way that, as Vincent Canby put it, confirms one's suspicions without adding to one's understanding. The difference is that the former film allows for an emotional connection and the latter doesn't. Like it or not, roll your eyes at it or not, Pretty Woman humanizes its hookers. Whore mocks the very idea that there could be any dignity to that life by literally spelling out the word dignity on a Scrabble board and later having Liz laugh at the concept while hiding out in a public restroom where another working girl is hard at work. Russell had never before seemed to parrot a party line in interviews, but looking at the wealth of press she did for horror, most of it revolves around her claiming that she and the other Russell had shown an authentic experience in defiance of Pretty Woman's fantasy. Not to put Pretty Woman down, but it was a caramelized view of prostitution. Teresa told the conservatively bent Time, which added that making the movie 
reinforced Russell's belief that prostitution should be legalized. Many pieces repeated an anecdote about an actual stabbing that occurred while they were shooting on location in downtown Los Angeles. There's a scene in horror in which porn star Ginger Lynn Allen, playing a hooker, ambles into a shot staged in front of the Cameo Theater with a fake knife wound in her stomach. Apparently, on set, Allen was followed into the shot by a non-actor who had really just been stabbed. This anecdote seems to have originated in a set visit report published in the LA Weekly a year before the movie came out. Remember Pretty Woman? Well, this is Unpretty Woman, wrote Samir Hashem. It's the dirt, the smut, the abuse, the sexual politics, the kink and humiliation, the brutal deceit, the heart and true tongue of street prostitution over the span of 24 hours. It's the grim flip side to Pretty Woman's romantic fantasy, a look at the sordid realities of a prostitute's life, and it's meant to shock in fine Ken Russell tradition, wrote Joshua Mooney in Movie Line. He also quoted the actress as saying, I think the film should be shown to the same eighth graders who are seeing Pretty Woman three or four times. Because in some ways, Pretty Woman glamorized that life. Richard Gere is not going to pick you up in his Ferrari on Hollywood Boulevard. Whore is the non-fairy tale version of the same story. It says, this is not a wise career move. In his story, Mooney used that aforementioned episode of 90210, which he called an insipid teen comedy, as evidence that the fairy tale had to be punctured. Teresa Russell is saving teen girls from their own worst instincts, exactly the ones exploited by Hollywood men, Mooney mused, while Julia Roberts is getting Oscar nominations. Prepped by the advanced publicity for some impossible hybrid of pseudo-documentary, searing political statement, and skin flick, critics were understandably disappointed by horror. Feminist manifesto or soft porn? Well, the Teresa Russell star whore, up close and in tight about the day-to-day tribulations of one toiler in the world's oldest profession, is actually neither, confirmed The Hollywood Reporter when the film debuted at Sundance in January 1991. Variety claimed about the movie's quote-unquote utter inauthenticity, as well as the fact that it just wasn't sexy. Director Russell, quote, is in restrained form, offering negligible treats in both the stylistic and sexual areas. Sex scenes are emphatically unerotic and mostly perfunctory, befitting the subject, but display none of the outrageous imagination Russell has brought to bear on the innumerable such encounters he has created over the years. Not everyone agreed that the Russell touch was missing entirely. After I saw Whore, wrote Joshua Mooney in Movie Line, I went home feeling guilty about being a white male or a male period, which is a politically correct, if impractical, sentiment. I began to ponder Ken Russell's shock tactics. Twice in this film, men vomit in the general direction of Teresa's character. Once would just be Ken Russell excess. Twice, 
That's him saying something heavy. He must mean that men are loathsome, sorry creatures. Men are pigs. Yes. As facetious as this might be, Mooney was not the only writer who suggested that Hoare's claims to realism were undercut by its depiction of all sex customers as violent. Premier magazine solicited a review from Xaviera Hollander, better known as the madam-turned-advice columnist, The Happy Hooker. Almost all of the women in Hoare are good-hearted and kind, while the men are a bunch of psychopathic losers, Hollander wrote. It's as though Ken Russell directed the film while held at gunpoint by a group of fundamental feminists. We're supposed to believe that Teresa Russell's character, Liz, is an honest hooker who's only into safe sex, is not interested in anything filthy, doesn't do any drugs, and that when a man actually helps her by saving her life and giving her $20 in the blood-soaked handkerchief he used to wipe her wounds, she returns the cash to him with a new hanky. You can bet your life there's no hooker in the world who'd give a man his money back. A Ken Russell film wouldn't be a Ken Russell film if it didn't provoke politicized criticism. But given its mass aspirations, horror feels like a miscalculation for its moment. Men were demonstrably tired of feeling blamed for every misfortune to befall women. And that meant they didn't want to think about undeniable gendered power imbalances such as that between the pimp and his female chattel. The Russells wanted to capitalize on the success of Pretty Woman, but they failed to understand that the Pretty Woman audience didn't want to think about prostitution as a real business, problematic or otherwise. As third-wave, sex-positive feminism increasingly found its way into popular culture, and with it, an emphasis on a woman's personal responsibility to prevent herself from getting into situations in which men took advantage of them. No one wanted to think about the situations in which personal responsibility wasn't a possibility. In all the reviews of horror that I read, and I read a lot, only Manola Dargis, writing in The Village Voice, was able to contextualize the misogyny depicted in horror as something non-whores should be concerned about. Here, she wrote, a whore is just another name for being female. This was unfortunately not the way the people who made whore talked about the movie. In a New York Times profile, Teresa Russell claimed her eight-year-old son had asked her what a whore was. And she told him, whore is a bad word for prostitution. When he asked her to define prostitution, she said, well, it's when women sell sex for money. She said that he said, oh, mommy, that's disgusting. To which she responded, for women who have to do it, it's very sad. The problem is that the movie itself doesn't speak with more nuance than this exchange with an eight-year-old boy. And still, what Hoare was trying to say and do was incendiary enough in 1991 that it was hobbled in the Hollywood marketplace by the MPAA, 
Ken Russell, who was contractually obligated by studio Trimark to deliver an R, had thought Hoare would get that rating without a problem. There's no nudity, he told Variety in September 1990. Most shots are from the neck up. At that point, the studio was asking the director to rush his final cut to qualify for the Oscars, which, if you've seen Hoare or have ever seen the Oscars, is pretty funny. And yet, a year later, after many reviews were in from Sundance, the MPAA's verdict landed. NC-17. Ken Russell, Teresa Russell, and producer Dan Ireland signed an open letter to the MPAA that appeared as a full-page ad in The Hollywood Reporter, which read in part, Before we made our film, it was decided that we did not want an NC-17 rating. It would defeat the entire purpose of what we were trying to do. When queried as to why Hoare received this rating, the MPAA did not provide us with a definitive answer. Rather, the response was for, quote, cumulative effect. The whole theme of the movie is the reason for the NC-17. The MPAA's charter states that its mission is to offer to parents some advance information about movies so that parents can decide what movies they want their children to see or not see. What kind of advance information are you providing to parents when you give an R rating to a movie like Pretty Woman, which portrays a romantic, fun, and glamorized view of prostitution, however fictitious that may be, thereby giving the message to parents that their teenagers can see this film while giving an NC-17 rating to a film like Whore, which portrays a very realistic, honest, and therefore unpleasant view of prostitution. After publishing this letter, the filmmakers appealed the rating, and their appeal was denied. Richard Hefner of the Ratings Board specifically cited the filmmakers' habit of defining themselves against Pretty Woman as, quote, an enormously cynical but obviously successful technique in gaining press attention. But it's ridiculous. When a film is chock full of graphic violence, it has to be off limits to children. Horror does depict almost every human interaction as ending in some kind of violence, although I would only call two of its scenes graphic. Still, the movie, which is purposely excessively vulgar in nearly every scene, probably deserves an NC-17 if the point of the rating is, as we've discussed, to ghettoize films about sexual aberrance. I think you can argue that Pretty Woman is not entirely about aberrant sex. It's also about dead dads and shopping. Of course, the other thing Pretty Woman had going for it when it went before the MPAA was that it was clearly extremely commercial. By the fall of 1991, it was evident that the function, if not the purpose of the NC-17, was to further marginalize movies that spoke to an already marginalized audience. Horror was thus most widely seen on VHS, a market Trimark capitalized on by releasing four versions, an unrated director's cut, the NC-17 theatrical cut, an R-rated cut for stores that wouldn't carry NC-17 movies, 
and an R-rated version with the slogan, if you can't say it, just see it, plastered over the movie's actual title for Blockbuster. In the 90s, my local video store carried one of the versions called Horror with an image of Russell in lingerie on a bed above the title, and it stayed on the new release shelf for literal years. Thus, at least a decade before I saw any Teresa Russell movie, I associated her name and image with the title Whore. So did Hollywood, apparently. Not that it's a surprise that the industry circa 1992 failed to think with more sophistication than a 12-year-old girl. It may be too easy to say that Whore put an end to Teresa Russell's momentum as a possible future movie star, but only because Russell seemed at odds with where that momentum could have taken her anyway. Talking about the state of her career circa Whore, she could seem a little wearied. She was still rarely getting offers to play anything other than girlfriends or wives. I don't want to have anything to do with that sort of misogynistic crap and shitty writing that's going on right now, she said. So that eliminates 90% of the choices. I'd love to do a sort of pioneer woman, real strong, out there in a get-off-my-land sort of thing. But they don't do them for women, so I play deranged sexual women. She did play a version of a pioneer woman in The Proposition in 1996 and would pop up two years later in a film we'll discuss later this season, Wild Things. By the early 2000s, she was in her mid-40s, divorced from Rogue, living in California, and looking for work from a mainstream industry that had never embraced her as a commercial prospect. In an interview to promote her role in the Sundance-winning neo-Nazi drama The Believer, she dryly commented, I'll do anything for a regular paycheck, you know? Anything for the next decade plus would mean the last Sam Raimi Spider-Man film and a lot of TV. She said in 2011, there's a certain type of television acting where they don't want egolessness. They really don't. They want it to be a certain way with your ego up front. To me, that's difficult to do. It's like another technique that I had to learn. Now that I'm 54, I just feel like, ugh, who wants to play that game anymore? At the time, she was promoting a new career as a jazz singer. She was performing in tiny venues, including the bar at Vitello's, the Italian restaurant in Studio City where my family ate bi-weekly in the 80s and where Robert Blake ate with his wife, Bonnie Lee Blakely, on the night she was murdered in his car. Russell was asked by interviewer Sam Lawson if singing had taught her anything about acting. Yeah, in some ways it has, she acknowledged. But I won't be able to ever get a role again where I can utilize it. Here in the U.S., there are very few of those meaty, wonderful leads for a woman of my age. They just don't write them. But I'm never bored. I don't miss acting a shit. I really don't. I miss acting doing something wonderful, but if it's not coming my way, then I don't sit around moping about it, that's for sure. That interview ended by plugging Russell's upcoming tour dates, which were listed on her website. As of this writing, 11 years later, that website is dead. 
In erotic 80s, I ended an episode about Phoebe Cates by saying that I miss her. And I miss Teresa Russell, too, even though I feel like she wouldn't give a shit about such sentimentality. In her best roles, she got to play a kind of woman rarely seen on screen then or since, whose tough shell and sexual bravado masks a bottomless pit of need, which she reveals to her detriment. She can take care of herself, and usually does, and because of that, maybe she can never really connect with a man, as long as men are primarily looking for the kind of malleability and submission that Clint Eastwood expected from Sandra Locke. There is an immense power projected by the Lady Lone Wolf, but also loneliness. As Teresa Russell and Sandra Locke both learned, Hollywood and America preferred a pretty woman to a beautiful woman who thought to be something other than an accessory to a man. This will become abundantly clear next week as we discuss the film that was supposed to change everything for women in Hollywood, and of course, didn't. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. 
Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.